Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really amazing founder that is going to be joining us. You know, we're going to be talking about all the good stuff that we like to hear, you know, their founding story, how they went to Vegas right away, you know, with uh, really not a lot, you know, going on at that point. But hey, you know, like they've, they're basically riding a rocket ship right now. They've raised a bunch of money, you know, from all types of profiles, private equity, VCs, strategics, family offices. So we're going to be talking about, you know, the differences between one another. And then also they've done an acquisition and how that translated into a merger, a rebrand. So a lot of good stuff ahead of us. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Tom Carter. Welcome to the show. Hey, great to, great to be here. So born in Essex to a family where your mother worked in school, your father was a chemist. How was life growing up? Give us a walk through memory lane. Yeah, life, life, life was good growing up. Um, I think I had a, what well, I would describe as a relatively normal um, childhood and upbringing. I think um, uh, both my parents worked very hard and I think we, myself and my sister, kind of took that ethic of, of hard work from them into, uh, into, into what we do, sort of like hard work, independence, um, applying that to school mostly, but also kind of like creatively outside of school and knowing that you need to like learn beyond what you get in the classroom. Um, I think that's kind of what gave, ultimately, what sort of like set some of the foundations for going on and becoming an entrepreneur. My sister's actually like gone and founded a company as well, changing the way that, uh, that people learn and published a book recently. So I guess there's, there's, there's probably something in that that like happened in our, in, in our upbringing, I guess. So I guess out of all things, you know, what got you into computers? Um, I liked, I really liked building things and I liked building things where, uh, other people can use them and you can see not just what they create with what you've built, but how they use it. I might, I've always been really, really fascinated with um, how you can create a device or a product and you can either make it a joy to use or you can make it really horrible, like a painful experience to use. So uh, that that's sort of like fastest and like, Fastest to iterate, easiest to see in uh, like on a computer where you can go and build websites. So I, I spent a lot of time building websites growing up. I started like a little website building company and built websites for other people. And then just learning to understand what makes a good interface, how it works well, and then watching people use it and like feeling like you've created something that makes people happy rather than makes people frustrated is something that uh, is, I find very satisfying. Now, in your case, you know, like you went to the university there of Bristol and you got your computer science degree and then you thought that doing a PhD would be a good idea to really understand what kind of company to build. And I and I think that the and I heard, too, that the university was not very happy, you know, of that. And they even tried kicking you out. So so tell us about this. Yeah, kind of. it's a bit of like a, an interesting story. So I did um, I did my undergrad degree at the University of Bristol in computer science, like a four year degree. And the final year of that degree, you have to do a, a big research project and you also have to write, do a business plan project. So I did mine on the same things. Um, I'd, you know, I'd seen, uh, I, I wanted to do stuff like we were saying about uh, human computer interface, 
we just got a uh, one of the Microsoft Connects for the Xbox, the sort of like camera that goes under your TV where you can jump up or down in your living room and play games. So those had just come out. We got one in our in our student flat, and I'd watch my friends playing games on that. And it was great when you were jumping up and down and sort of like dodging things on screen. But as soon as you came to like a menu screen and there were just like two buttons on the screen, people really struggled to like press those buttons and know where to put their hands because there's no there's no tactile feedback. Final year of my uh, degree, I had to do a research project. So that was kind of the project I took on. It's like how can you how can you bring back the sense of touch to these kind of experiences? Really low friction. People aren't going to want to put things on their hands. How can we do that in a way that uh, that makes that kind of technology easy? So I connected with a with a professor there at the university to be my sort of supervisor. Started work on that as the um, uh, as my project, building what became our, our haptics technology. And then I would have loved to have turned it into a company at the end of my degree, but the reality was it it didn't actually work. You couldn't feel anything. Um, I kind of ended up using the technology to push a ball around on a screen. I made a, made a game of Pong where the paddles were virtual, the ball was real, and you could kind of like play, play Pong on a, on, a, on a computer screen. So that's kind of fun, but it didn't actually work. Um, but I, I was convinced that it would. So what I did, I actually had a job going and becoming a software developer. I didn't turn up to that. Instead, I enrolled to do a PhD to develop the technology further. And um, the kind of the intention in my head was that I'm going to use the PhD to get the tech to a point where it's ready to spin out a company and uh, and, and start that. And yeah, I think after like two years of the PhD, it was at a point where the tech was ready. There was enough interest from customers, from like the media, from uh, like journalists uh, that I was like, okay, now's the time. We've got to got to get out of the university. You've got to start the company now. Um, uh, so that's kind of what led to spinning the company out uh, about 10 years ago. Ultimately, then I kind of just put my PhD on pause for a year, tried to pause it again. That's the point where, they, where it wasn't the university, but like somebody at the university started trying to be like, okay, you know, you can't pause anymore. You've got to either finish your finish your PhD thesis, or, or we'll have to kick you out of the university and you have to leave. Um, and I don't, I don't, I don't like being kicked out. So I, I ended up, I wrote my PhD thesis in 18 days, I think, which is a terrible idea. And if anybody's actually doing a PhD, don't do that. Uh, it does not lead to the best thesis you'll ever see. But um, for me, it was kind of like a uh, prove that I could do it. Get the uh, the PhD done in weekends while running the company at the same time. So, um, yeah. But got fa- fast pace and, and, and I'm sure it was stressful during those 18 days. But now in your case, you know, when you guys uh, really went at it, you decided to pack the bags and go to CES as the first trip, going to Vegas out of all places. So tell us about what was this uh, trip like? Because it was quite a breakthrough moment to you guys. Yeah, I think, I, I guess that's what, all, all uh, tech founders do, right? As soon as you started the company, you book plane tickets to Vegas. Um, it's like maybe not quite normal, but um, so it was to the Consumer Electronics Show, uh, CES, like the biggest tech show, trade show that happens every year in, in January. So we founded the company in November. Uh, we didn't have any funding. I had entered a business plan competition uh, at the university. I'd won first prize in that. There was some money from that. A couple of the other co-founders had some savings as well. So we put in you know, a few tens of thousands into the company, uh, actually like hired our first um, employee at that point. And 
just like started basically just like jumped off the edge and figured we'll we'll find out how to find money before we run out of this uh this, this small pot and so the thought was the best way to do that go to the biggest trade show in the world and just start booking meetings with uh customers Plus, because what, what we built the technology like haptic feedback so giving you uh feedback for the sense of touch it's it's an it's an interface technology so you can apply it to so many different use cases so many different applications so we just wanted to meet lots of lots of people lots of companies and kind of figure out where the best opportunities are so i just started uh emailing ceos of large companies uh like guessing their email address using a little gmail plugin that pulls up their linkedin profile for an email address you just guess it until the linkedin profile comes up and you're like oh that must be their email address uh booked a whole load of meetings you know we had like Palmer Lucky turned up having just one best of show uh, for the, the Oculus, which was breaking out. Loads of big companies, like almost everybody, I think all but one led to a meeting. Um, and we had an investor join us and like a, a participate in some of the meetings. And it was typical like startup approach to to a trade show. We were in, we were not officially at CES. We didn't have badges. We set up in a hotel near the show, got people to come to us. I think the demo worked for the first time 45 minutes before the first meeting all of that kind of stuff but the meetings all went really really well and sort of the number one comment out of all of them was hey can i have can i have one of those i want one of those devices to take back into my lab with me um and uh that kind of led to the the investor who was with us saying okay this is this is cool i'm convinced that there's there's demand here and that led to our first uh first investment check so super cool show um the one other thing that everybody said also at this point in time the technology created like an audible sound like a buzz like a buzzing noise and uh, pretty much everybody was like hey i want one which they couldn't have because that was the only one in the world we actually like broke we made three we broke two of them working till like 4 a.m getting ready for the show so we had one uh and two they said can you get rid of the audible noise and then um kind of like a wild moment we the show finished the day after before our flight. Uh, myself and the other co-founder, we just sat in the hotel room for an entire day and had like microwave porridge for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and just worked on how do we solve this one problem, figured it out by the end of the day. And that's kind of like one of the, the main technical breakthroughs we've had in the company, I think. So, so I guess but for anyway. the people that are, that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of the company? Yeah, so business model of the company, we are um, we're B2B. So we license our technologies, uh, haptic and hand tracking to companies to integrate into their products. Uh, we take a, a license fee for, for that license and then a per unit royalty as they go and um, ship products. So. so talk to us about the product. What is the product itself? So we have two, uh, two products. One is our haptic technology that I was talking about there. So this uses um ultrasound so sound that's too high frequency for you to hear um, from a collection of small speakers projects that through the air and focuses the sound waves onto your hand um and then that creates a force that's strong enough to just push on the surface of your skin and we use that to create a vibration so basically we can use sound that you can't hear to vibrate the surface of the skin on the hand and we can change how that feels to create a palette of different sensations so if you press a button, you can feel a click. If you reach out and grab an object, you can feel that you've touched it. Or you can do things that don't exist in the real world, like firing lightning bolts out of your fingers and all sorts of crazy fun stuff. So it takes the whatever is virtual and makes it physical for you so you can feel it. The other technology is the other half of that equation. It's hand tracking. 
uh, uses a camera to see your hands and give you real-time 3D models of your hands. So it's a sort of a full machine learning application um, that in real-time, no perceivable latency, gives you millimeter accuracy, all of the bone and joint positions in your hands, so that whatever you do with your physical hands are perfectly represented in the in the virtual world. And the, the goal with all of this is to move movers beyond interacting by uh, you know touching a device in one place for something to change on a screen in another location or using like a touch screen where there's like a whole 3D world on one side of the glass and you're kind of like on the outside tapping on the window um, to like remove those barriers and get get us as humans directly hands-on with virtual content and interacting in a more natural way like we do with all the other physical stuff in our uh, in our day-to-day lives. Now, you were talking about it before, you know, how you guys kickstarted things with uh, investors, you know, at the conference. Uh, how much capital have you guys raised today for the people listening to get it? We've raised about 125 million pound, like British pounds, say. Um, okay. Yeah. So, uh, so whatever the conversion is, maybe like 140 to 160 million, something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that. Does, okay. Yeah. Now, now, what was the, what has been the journey of raising all that money? So first check came um, from our, our first investor IP group after CES. So uh, that was a like a convertible note to get us up and running, gave us runway to get to uh, ready to close our seed round. So we closed our seed round basically a year after starting the company. At that point, we had an evaluation kit. We had paying customers. So uh, it sort of really got us in a good position for that seed round. That was So that seed round was just uh, IP group. Series A round, we brought on some more um, sort of like larger investors in the UK, uh, a firm called Woodford um, joined us for, for our A round. Uh, B round was where we really started venturing out into the, the virtual reality world and uh, like expanded into XR, which was like when we started really like a, a very nascent thing. I said like, you know, Oculus had just brought out the, uh, uh, the Rift, it was just starting. That was the point where we had our plan and our strategy. Um, there we brought on a number of family offices and we had the Dolby family invested in us in our, in our series B round, um, uh, sort of like a partner in, in Japan as well, great like sort of technology partner, uh, called Corns out there. And then more recently C and D rounds, C round, we had, um, uh, Mayfair equity partners who are a private equity firm. So again, like a different type of investor came into us at the, at the C round. And then that D round was led by Tencent who are a, uh, obviously like a strategic company coming in there. So yeah, we've kind of had like a pretty big mix of pretty much everything other than angels pretty much uh, through the life of the company. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone it's super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams 
through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a Series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. What is the difference that you've seen between, you know, all these uh, different types of profiles of investors that you have? I mean, you have their private equities, venture capital, strategics, family offices. What is the difference, you know, from one another? Um, so there's a, there's a difference in the way they think and a difference in their objectives, ultimately. Um, so not talking about any of the like individuals specifically, but including the broader fields of companies that we've talked to. You know, a lot of strategics are looking for, um, like, yes, they want to make a financial return, but probably the bigger swing there is is um, some kind of uh, like um, beneficial tie-in with projects or activities they have within the company. Um, so there's some like value for them from a from, from a product sense where they're looking to form a uh, a closer relationship. Is often like the way strategic conversations happen. Um, Venture capital uh, is about growth, so taking an idea from a from an earlier stage, providing it with the funding to uh, to grow, and like what connections can they bring to do that? Um, private equity then takes a much it's just sort of like a much more mature view, so more intense on due diligence process, and um, uh, I'd almost say like a yeah, kind of like a like a more mature approach to sort of modeling and financial structure and constructs of the company and uh, and like how we're going to finance ourselves for the uh, for the future. So yeah, you end up with like different perspectives, different different viewpoints um, across the board. I'd say yeah. Now along the way, you guys say uh, you know ended up acquiring Leap Motion, you know, and uh, and and obviously that kind of like led to a rebrand and and all types of like complex and challenging things. So I guess, why did you guys think that the transaction made sense and how did that unravel, you know, all the different stuff that came along with it? Yeah, so it was about really figuring what's the best, um, what's the best way to grow the company? What's the best chance to secure success? So at this point, we were focused on on, a, on the haptics technology. We had like a one piece of the puzzle, uh, right? There was a gap in technology and giving the user that kind of tactile feedback, we filled that gap. But we did that somewhat in isolation. And that meant that we were sort of subject to the whims of other companies in the space. Uh, like it didn't, it wasn't necessary that their roadmaps would always align with what we needed. Um, so at that some point along that journey, we decided we, we kind of really need to own both the input and the output to and there's a lot of benefits of combining those two that both sides get better when you put them together. So we should bring those two things together. Um, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd worked with David, one of the founders of Leap Motion, for, for a long time. Um, since before I started Ultraleap, uh, I still have on my desk like one of the early prototypes of the Leap Motion controller from like before they, uh, before they launched. And so we talked around this time and it just kind of like made sense for both of us. Like for us, that was how we wanted to grow the company. 
for uh, for the Leap Motion team. It's kind of about like what's the right home for their technology and the team to like sort of continue the vision of uh, what Leap Motion were trying to achieve in transitioning the world to using their hands. We kind of both had uh, two pieces of the same puzzle, so we thought we'd bring them together and then uh, create a like a stronger, more uh, attractive proposition from that. And what was like uh, doing the doing the rebrand? How how hard was that? There are plenty of bits of that that were difficult because you've got two companies in Ultra Haptics and Lead Motion that had a lot of brand equity that had a lot of like reputation uh, into them. I think like Ultra Haptics, particularly in our customer base, you know, even then we were very much a B two B company, and the sort of like trust of what you get from us was uh, was pretty well established. Lead Motion did a consumer product right at the beginning. Like their first product was available in Best Buy and Walmart and uh, it got a huge amount of consumer attention. So they had like almost like a bigger profile as a uh, as a company. And we were very conscious of that and you know damaging that and how do we transition that over to a to a new name. But ultimately there was the easy part where everybody agreed that the, the company needed a new name and we couldn't continue to be called Ultra Haptics when we were not doing just haptics. That didn't make any sense. So uh, fortunately, there was the name Ultraleap, just kind of a nice fusion of uh, Ultra Haptics and Leap Motion. You can put those two things together. Everybody was really happy with that as a name, so that bit was easy. But then there was a huge amount of work in terms of picking pieces of both companies, like brand identity and style, and deciding do we want to lean in more of a like B two B direction? Do we want to keep some of the consumer elements from Leap Motion? Uh, and yeah, a lot of time and sweat and effort trying to get that right and then on the other side of it a lot of time and effort trying to like push the general understanding to who ultra leap is we're not a new company and that we kind of have that legacy of the the, the two companies that have gone before us so. so let's say you were to go to sleep tonight tom and you wake up in a world where the vision of ultra leap is fully realized what does that world look like i think it it uh it looks like I like everybody interacting with computers with 3D content where they're using their hands. So you would approach virtual stuff in the same way that you approach physical stuff. I mean, ultimately, I'm a big believer in the sort of the ultimate destination of the XR space of augmented reality, where that's going to get to and how the same as in the movies. You know, you used to be able to go and watch a film and see uh, like a clear and obvious difference between what is real and what is computer graphics. Nowadays, you kind of can't tell the difference between them. Uh, that's going to be the same in XR in the future, right? You're going to be sitting here and on your desk in front of you, there'll be, you know, 10 objects, five of them real, five of them virtual. You won't be able to tell the difference. Um, and you're going to be, able to, you're going to use your hands for that. Um, that's kind of the, uh, the, the sort of like headline, um, headline vision. It's, makes it easier for you to interact and it also increases the ability for the computer or the device that you're using to understand you and your intent right but when we're talking we do a lot of like gesticulating with our hands there's a lot of body language uh, involved and the more that the computer can kind of infer that data to add context to what you're saying whether that's in the sort of like talking to ai assistants or otherwise um uh, that's gonna help so yeah i guess Interaction is easier. It's more like the uh, the the physical world and the, the sort of devices understand your intent better. So now let's say I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. You know, I bring you back in time to maybe 
that moment where you were still doing your PhD and, and figuring out, you know, a company that, that you would build of your own. And let's say you had the opportunity of uh, sitting down that younger self, that younger Tom, and being able to give to that younger Tom one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Yeah, great question. Um, I think the advice I'd give my younger self would be to get work, work with a coach earlier. I work with a, um, a third party who can help explore my my mind, my head, and, and, and help me solve problems. Um, I fundamentally really like to solve problems. I think it's true with a lot of, you know, particularly computer scientists and entrepreneurs, ultimately we're kind of like problem solvers. So if we see any, a, a challenge, the, the default reaction is to go like crunch that problem on my own and try and figure it out and, and, and fix it and get a lot of satisfaction from coming up with a, with a solution. But, and that's particularly true in a company where, you know, you can be mindful of that and work hard to make sure you're delegating to the right people. But as you're growing a startup, there's so many things that come up that don't have a designated owner, that don't sort of fit in one of the roles of somebody else. And so my like natural reaction is anything that doesn't fit, I'll I'll take to myself. Um, and I think working with a coach has really helped me uh, with that, improve on like how to approach those challenges, improve with like speed of decision making because of that. And yeah, that's definitely something I wish I'd, I'd started earlier. Is there like a point where you wish you would have had that? Um, I mean, I guess I, ultimately I wish I'd have had it from day one, to be honest, but we couldn't afford it on day one. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, I think just the earlier, the better, really. If you're, if you're in a leadership position and you're running a company and you're responsible for other people's investment and you're responsible for other people's employment, then that easily justifies the cost of you know, paying a good coach to help you make better decisions and help you uh, increase the speed of decision-making. So. I love it. So, Tom, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, best way is probably LinkedIn these days. So, um, yeah, if you just search for Tom Carter, Ultraleap, uh, I will hopefully pop up and then, yeah, connect or shoot me a message and uh, I'd love to chat. Amazing. Well, hey, Tom, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Thanks so much, Alejandro. Amazing to be here. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.